another mass shooting, a new film supports Ukraine and Syria, Fauci's final, Herschel Walker's girlfriend speaks, Biden and Saudi Arabia, a strange match, and 59 years, the meaning of the Kennedy assassination. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Thursday morning, Indigenous Peoples Day, November 24th, 2022. A manager at a Walmart in Virginia opened fire on fellow employees in a break room, killing six before taking his own life. The gunman was identified as Andre Bing. He said nothing as he opened fire on workers ahead of an overnight shift. At least four others were wounded in the attack. Police say the motive for the shooting is under investigation. The mass shooting comes just days after five people were killed at a Colorado Springs LGBTQ nightclub. On Wednesday, President Joe Biden called the shootings yet another horrific and senseless act of violence, noting another shooting earlier this month that killed three University of Virginia students. Biden said in a statement, there are now even more tables across the country that will have empty seats this Thanksgiving. And in international news, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky urged the United Nations Security Council to act against Russia over airstrikes on civilian infrastructure that have plunged Ukraine into darkness and cold on the eve of winter. The missile barrage was unleashed across Ukraine, killing 10 people and forcing shutdowns in nuclear power plants and cutting water and electricity. Meanwhile, Russia's United Nations ambassador, Vasily Nebenzia, claimed the damage to Ukraine's power grid was caused by errant Ukrainian air defense missiles. In related news, on Wednesday, the European Parliament voted to designate Russia a state sponsor of terrorism because of its attacks on Ukrainian civilian targets. Vote is closed and it is broadly adopted. Congratulations. The vote is symbolic because the European Parliament doesn't have the power to back it up. The body has already imposed unprecedented sanctions on Russia because of its invasion of Ukraine. Meanwhile, in more international news, the Biden administration told a U.S. judge last week that Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi crown prince, should be granted immunity in a civil lawsuit over his role in the murder of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The crown prince is widely known as MBS. The decision was sparked by a lawsuit from Hadis Senjis, Khashoggi's Turkish fiance, and Dawn, a Washington-based human rights group. It effectively ends one of the last efforts to hold the prince accountable for Khashoggi's assassination by a Saudi hit team inside the kingdom's consulate in Istanbul in October 2018. Biden has already backtracked denunciations of bin Salman as a pariah and traveled to Saudi Arabia where a photo of the two fist-bumping was widely seen as an embarrassment for the president. The director of the Hagop Kevorkian Center for Near Eastern Studies and a journalism professor at New York University, Mohammed Bazi, says President Biden is letting MBS bully him. With Trump, it was fairly clear. I mean, Trump didn't make any pretense of being concerned about human rights. And when Khashoggi was killed, Trump basically said, okay, too bad, but it's one guy and I'm not going to change this relationship with the Saudis. And I want to sell them weapons. And he he was pretty honest about it. And he never couched it in this rhetoric of centering policy around human rights or holding anyone to account for Khashoggi's murder, assassination. The puzzling thing about how Biden has acted in in these uh, first two years in office is that he started out 
changing the relationship with the Saudis. At the very beginning, he released the intelligence report that Trump had refused to release for two years, the report which found that MBS was responsible for ordering Khashoggi's assassination, that MBS was behind it. So he Biden did follow through on that early pledge within about a month or so of taking office. And then he also made this uh, grand announcement about how he would suspend weapons sales to the Saudis for offensive weapons, as he put it. And that was supposed to be the beginning of the end of the Yemen war, because it would be the end of U.S. support. But as it turned out, the Saudis could say most of the weapons they want are for defensive purposes. So it was a bit of a ruse. And and the weapons sales... And more, more importantly, as you know from having covered the Yemen war and, and the history of this over the last six, seven years, it's also about U.S. support, military support and assistance for the Saudis in Saudi Arabia, helping keep the machinery of war, helping keep the Air Force running, helping keep the military running. So providing supplies and the technical assistance that allows you know, the Saudi military to continue to function. And then we got into this situation where Biden wanted to continue to uh, paint MBS and the Saudis as a pariah, but couldn't quite live up to to doing that. And so he went hat in hand over the summer to to Saudi. There was the the famous photo, the famous photo op of uh, the fist bump, cringeworthy photo op, possibly the most cringeworthy of the Biden years so far. And then he got nothing out of that because MBS turned around and and basically stabbed him in the back and led OPEC Plus to cut oil production instead of increasing it so that prices would go down. Don't seem weak before a bully or else he'll just bully you some more. Biden's mother probably told him the same thing when he was taking his books to third grade. So why didn't he learn from what we all know is that you don't if a person is bullying you, and as, as a bully, you don't uh, show weakness to them or you'll never get rid of them. That's a great comparison and a good question. It seems Biden's advisors, a uh, couple of people on the National Security Council, really wanted to save the U.S.-Saudi relationship, kept pushing for this opening, this diplomatic opening, kept pushing Biden to add Saudi to his trip to the Middle East. He he went to Israel first, and, and then they convinced him to go to Saudi and to create that photo op with MBS. That's so what that happened in July. By August, MBS had two Saudi women who got these extremely long prison sentences for social media posts, 34 and 45 years no sign of easing up, no sign of any leniency. He buckled down as a bully would do and made things worse. And then by October, um, there was the decision in OPEC Plus to cut production by 2 million barrels a day and to get oil prices to, to rise again. Now in November, we have this decision last week to grant MBS immunity because of this ploy that the Saudi government, or rather the king, he named uh, MBS prime minister, even though traditionally it's the king holds that role. King Salman, his father is still king. And even though he's handed day-to-day control to MBS for years, they added this title in a ploy to get immunity because it technically makes him head of government. 
now the Biden administration has gone along with that, despite all of the ways that MBS has shown disregard and disdain for Biden in the last two years. Ben Solomon is immune from legal action because he was recently promoted to prime minister and officially is now the Saudi head of state, taking the job from his father, King Solomon, seen as a ploy to grant MBS sovereign immunity under U.S. law from legal action against him in this country. The Pentagon said on Wednesday that Turkish airstrikes in northern Syria threatened the safety of United States military personnel. The Pentagon spokesperson says airstrikes in Syria threaten U.S. personnel in Syria working with local partners to defeat ISIS and secure 10,000 ISIS detainees. The United States has about 900 soldiers in Syria. Turkey's president has said the recent attacks were only the beginning. And a new film, a short documentary titled The Other Side of the Sea, is making its premiere at the Soapbox Gallery in Brooklyn on Friday, December 16th. As artists, you have a responsibility to appeal to people on an emotional level. You cannot ignore injustice or something bad happening in other parts of the world. We went through this in Syria, and still we're going through this refugee crisis. At least 6.2 million Syrians are internally displaced, while another 5.7 million have sought refuge abroad. The film is the creation of New York City documentary filmmaker Zhuan Yupan, originally from Taiwan. The film tells the story of a community of artists and musicians in the New York City area who wanted to bring awareness to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the ensuing refugee crisis, making the connection with refugees from Syria. Filmmakers Nancy Wolf and Juan Yupan spoke with the news. We are talking about the experience of Syrians as well as Ukrainians. There's been a war going on in Syria it's sort of in the background and we don't really talk about it, but it's still going on and it is a Russian assault, just like with Ukraine. So this idea of artists coming together, maybe from cultures that maybe are not related to each other and they didn't see that a relationship before, but now there's that relationship. And so this group of Ukrainians artists, as well as this other group called Razum for Ukraine, which has been doing a lot of rallies and really bringing people together. And they'll do things like they were doing one rally with the women of Iran to support their struggle. There's stuff about protesters protesting Ethiopia. They're bringing in the other people's struggles in this way that's not, my country is more important. And they're saying, no, that is not what's going on. It's autocratic regimes, there's misinformation, propaganda, worried about being disappeared, you know, all these kinds of things are all kind of present in a lot of these other struggles. It all just sort of comes together. Schwan, mm -hmm. let me ask you, um, does uh, your involvement in this project, was this informed by your being originally from Taiwan? So my idea for this project is actually tracking back to my another project. It's an ongoing feature length stuff. It's called Here at Home. Since 2016, I've been following a group of artists and musicians, and uh, two of them are from Syria. I learned from them that someone from 
another country, like how you care about other people. And I see the struggle and compare my own. For me, at this moment, it's not like a like super struggle, like other people, like, you know, people from the country which have all this like immediate like danger. Like a reminder, it's a reminder for me that like an inspiration for people who are not aware of all this like, potential danger during the daily life and not knowing anything going on in the world and not seeing the potential danger approaching, that kind of thing. That was one of my purposes working on this film. And another thing is that I consider people in the city, in New York City, that they are not my neighbors. My, neighbor, my neighbors are in danger. I, I want to do something for them and uh, to inspire ourselves like, uh, who are not aware of all this. Filmmakers Nancy Wolf and Juan Yu Pan. The film explores the use of art, music, and direct action to unite different cultures working with the group Razum for Ukraine, a not-for-profit seeking to amplify voices from Ukraine. The filmmakers finance a documentary using crowdsourced funding. We just wrapped crowdfunding. However, if people want to follow along, they can still go to our Seed and Spark page and click follow, and then they can get updates to our progress. We're actually having a special event on December 16th. The tickets link should be available this week. It will be a concert as well as the premiere of the film, and will be at Soapbox Gallery in Brooklyn. And then additionally, we are also offering online screenings and then even a live stream of the concert and Q&A. So a bunch of different ways that people can engage with that. And that's going to be around the same time. The Other Side of the Sea is making its premiere at the Soapbox Gallery in Brooklyn on Friday, December 16th. Doors open at 7 p.m. In national news, updated COVID-19 booster shots rolled out by Pfizer and rival Moderna in September have been a hard sell for vaccine-weary Americans. Only about 13% of United States adults have gotten a bivalent shot targeting the Omicron strain and the original coronavirus. On Tuesday, White House officials announced a renewed push for more Americans to get the latest shots. In what will probably be his last appearance as the nation's top infectious disease expert before he retires at year's end, Dr. Anthony Fauci said, the first look at the new shots' real-world effectiveness shows they work. We know it's safe. We know that it is effective. So my message and my final message, maybe the final message I give you from this podium, is that please, for your own safety, for that of your family, Get your updated COVID-19 shot as soon as you're eligible to protect yourself, your family, and your community. I urge you to visit vaccines.gov to find the location where you can easily get an updated vaccine. And please do it as soon as possible. Thank you. Dr. Anthony Fauci. The Centers for Disease Control studied 360,000 COVID-19 tests. They found the new Omicron-targeted booster added 30 to 56% protection against symptomatic infection, depending on how many prior vaccinations someone had, how long ago, and their age. And House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy was on the southern border, where he called on Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas to resign over management of the border with Mexico on Tuesday. McCarthy, the presumptive new House Speaker, warned the new House GOP majority will open investigations that could lead to impeachment proceedings. This is why today I am calling on the Secretary 
to resign. He cannot and must not remain in that position. If Secretary Mayorkas does not resign, House Republicans will investigate every order, every action, and every failure will determine whether we can begin impeachment inquiry. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, House Republicans have put border security among their top priorities and Mayorkas among their top officials to investigate and try to remove from office, potentially through impeachment. In the runoff election for the United States Senate in Georgia, Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock holds a slight lead over his GOP challenger, Herschel Walker. That boosts Democrats' hopes of adding to their numbers in the Senate. The survey, completed by Fabrizio and Associates for AARP, shows Warnock with 51% support, the first time the incumbent lawmaker has garnered more than 50% support in a general election poll this campaign season. Walker has the backing of 47% of voters. And in more Georgia runoff news, a second woman is alleging she was pressured into having an abortion by Herschel Walker, the Republican nominee in Georgia's hotly contested Senate race. On Tuesday, the woman known as Jane Doe appeared with her lawyer, Gloria Allred, to present previously unseen letters, audio recordings, and pages of her personal diary that she says were evidence of their relationship. Walker is denied even knowing the woman. Alvarez says her client didn't want an abortion, but was pressured into the procedure by what she claims were threats by Walker. In May of 1993, she learned that Mr. Walker had impregnated her. My client did not want to have an abortion. When she told Mr. Walker about the pregnancy, he spoke about disappearing and the, quote, afterlife, end quote, and made her believe that he might commit suicide. He also claimed that if she gave birth, both our client and their child would be in danger. Jane Doe stated that she felt pressured by Mr. Walker's threats and went alone to the abortion clinic to have the procedure. But she left crying because she did not want to go through with it. After she told Mr. Walker that she did not have the abortion, she stated that the next day, Mr. Walker drove her in his car to the abortion clinic to ensure that she had the abortion that she did not want to have. Allred then presented what she says is a recorded phone call between her client and Walker, showing they knew each other intimately. Uh, you sitting just platform calling you big sex puppy, you can't believe you're not in. I will uh, talk to you later. You be sweet. Bye-bye. Again, this is what he said, quote, Ah, you, this is your stud farm calling you big sex puppy, you. Can't believe you're not in. I will uh, talk to you later. You be sweet. Bye-bye. End quote. Here is another recording of you, Mr. Walker. And the first was a voicemail. But another recording of you speaking to Jane Doe, the woman that you say you don't know. Okay, well, have a good day today. Thank you, and I love you. I love you very much. I love you now. <laughs> and I love you more. Okay. No, um, 
Call me. <laughs> you say your race is Saturday morning, right? Uh, yes, Saturday morning. Okay. So will you call me when you get back and tell me how it went? Yes, I'll do that. I'm going to stay right here by the phone until I hear from you. Okay. Well, I'll probably be sleeping right here by the phone until I hear from you. Okay, I'm going to call. Okay. Okay. I love you, baby. Love you, too. Okay. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Attorney Allred then read a letter from a friend of Jane Doe discussing the pregnancy and the relationship with Walker at the same time. Mr. Walker, in addition to Jane Doe's statement, we have a signed declaration under penalty of perjury from her friend stating the following, quote, in the spring of 1993, Jane Doe confided to me that she was pregnant and that Mr. Walker had impregnated her. I was with Ms. Doe when she took two consecutive pregnancy tests and I saw her positive test results. Ms. Doe was shocked to learn that she was pregnant because she told me that she was on birth control. I could visibly see how upset Ms. Doe was by her facial expression and the tone of her voice. About a month later, Ms. Doe told me that she had a miscarriage. However, I suspected that Ms. Doe had had an abortion because Mr. Walker did not want her to continue with the pregnancy since he was still married at the time. Shortly thereafter, Ms. Doe abruptly left Dallas. Jane Doe herself took questions from the media. She described her joy at discovering she was pregnant and her horror at what she claims was Walker's insensitivity and coercion. I was very concerned because I knew about his prior suicide attempt several years earlier. And I also had multiple conversations in which he spoke about threats to me and the baby if I went through with pregnancy. Quote, I wanted to just go home. And he kept saying they would still find out and that they could, quote, have his heart, unquote, by threatening me and the baby. He even told me he thought they would try to take the child away from me, end quote. I need a minute. Sorry. I also wrote about how I told my mom about the pregnancy and how I did not want to have an abortion. Jane Doe is the second woman alleging she was pressured into having an abortion by Herschel Walker, the Republican nominee in Georgia's hotly contested Senate race. The first woman to make allegations against Walker told the Daily Beast last month that he paid for her to have an abortion in 2009. In related news, a Georgia appeals court ruling on Monday means that counties can offer early voting this coming Saturday in the U.S. Senate runoff, pitting Senator Warnock against his rival and former football star Herschel Walker. Georgia's 2021 election law compressed the time period between the general election and the runoff to four weeks, and Thanksgiving falls in the middle. Many Georgians will be offered only five weekdays of early in-person voting beginning November 28th. And it's 59 years ago. November 22, 1963, that a bullet, or bullets, depending on who you believe, took the life of the 35th President of the United States, John F. Kennedy. 
the scion of a powerful Boston family who reportedly made its original money bootlegging whiskey. He was known as JFK, one of the youngest presidents, the first Catholic president. JFK was tested by a failed CIA invasion of Cuba in 1961, a confrontation over missiles on the island with Russia that brought the world to the brink of nuclear war, a promise to go to the moon before the end of the decade, and arguably the most debated topic in American politics since the Civil War. Who killed JFK? Was it a conspiracy or a lone gunman? A familiar face to Americans in 1963, newsman Walter Cronkite breaking into the soap opera as the world turns made the tragic announcement. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Vice President Lyndon Johnson <clears throat> has left the hospital in uh, Dallas, but we do not know uh, to where he has proceeded. Uh, presumably, he will be taking the oath of office shortly and become uh, the 36th President of the United States. Walter Cronkite announcing the death of President John F. Kennedy to an assassin's bullet fired in Dallas on November 22, 1963. A longtime assassination researcher, Frank Morales, was a freshman in high school when he heard Kennedy had been killed. He says he's been on search for the truth ever since. He says it's an uphill battle against disinformation that claims JFK died at the hands of a lone gunman. Whenever there's something that uh, pops up in media and, and has the threat of uh, transmitting some truth out there and maybe getting some people motivated to do something about it, there are the... Uh, those who are then brought forth to speak in behalf of of the big lie, yet another big lie regarding the, the lone assassin in, in around JFK. That's the way it goes. The uh, issues around maintaining this cover-up are a subject in all and of themselves. There are authors out there who have been paid to do that. It's JFK, RFK, Malcolm, his murder with police involvement. It's a continued struggle. And that's why it's really important to stick to our guns when it comes to our powers of discernment and rationality. Um, I said, you know, today's the day and uh, that Kennedy was killed. And the first young guy never heard of it, had no idea a president had been assassinated, didn't know there was a yeah. president named Kennedy, had no idea. Then another yeah. kid who just a couple of years older came in and said, oh, I knew about that. And it was interesting what he said. He said, Kennedy saved the world by giving Khrushchev a way to back down in the Cuban Missile Crisis and not trying to totally humiliate the Soviet Union. We're missing that now from the Biden administration. Yeah, that's 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 really a great insight. Referencing the the showdown, um, nuclear showdown in '62, and Kennedy, who during that crisis was so freaked out that was then moved to a more uh, you know direction of of peacemaking and uh, and dealing. Mm -hmm. what cost him his life eventually dealing critically with uh, the military establishment, particularly Lemitzer and the Joint Chiefs and all those people. Yeah, and uh, Lemitzer, who we know, it turned out, was uh, openly planning with other members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to, he was a member, I think, the chief of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, to have bombs go off in America as a false flag to invite an attack on Cuba. And of course, we know when Kennedy in 61 refused to back up with the U.S. military, the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba, which had been set up by the president previous to him. 
setting up this whole false flag, so-called false flag operation regarding the bombing of uh, Cuba to create a pretext for an invasion, which yeah. is what limited, what they were into, was set down in documents that are publicly available. Again, this is like, it's out there. Mm-hmm. Operation Northwoods, following up on Operation Northwoods and what that represented, reading what they were doing. This was uh, a manifestation of this approach, which is to carry out some dirty deeds and then uh, find some means of covering it up, obfuscating the uh, the truth of the matter from the public. And they come upon these tried and true methodologies, and the lone assassins. And, but Operation Northwood's documents puts a lie to that whole lie. <laughs> so I, I recommend that around that issue. What right do you have to talk about the CIA? You don't know anything. And uh, what, what right do you have to have an opinion about something that has to do with the security of the country, mm-hmm. operating at a high level? And what are you sticking your nose into it? Yeah, that's what they want to do. It's kind of keep us dumb, uninformed. Yeah, well, you know, as they say, knowledge is power. And uh, they want to keep you, you know, as Frederick Douglass said, another Douglass, Frederick, said, knowledge makes a man unfit to be a slave. (laughs) Knowledge is power. And when people learn what's going on, particularly in terms of threats to their well-being and uh, their democratic rights, they... What right do you have to that power? It's a human right to uh, resist forms of uh, violation and violence, uh, particularly when they're state-sponsored. This is what the struggle is all about. A longtime assassination researcher, Frank Morales, was a freshman in high school when he heard Kennedy had been killed. And that's the news for Thursday morning, Indigenous Peoples Day, November 24, 2022. The news was written and anchored by this reporter. You can hear the news at paulderienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.